appreciate you being here this evening. We're going to continue our teaching series from the book of Acts uh, entitled Church Blueprints. Uh, the, the goal or the theme, if you will, of this teaching series that we'll be in through, through really through the bulk of the school year is, um, is a, a blueprint of the way God designed the church Really, if, if, you could, if you could have a handle to, to hold on to as we go through this series, the handle would be this. How do we translate the first century church into the 21st century? How do we take what God used, His blueprint, God invented the church, how do we take that and, and make it uh, relevant and effective in in our generation. The reality is that you do that by discerning what are the marks, the characteristics, the basic traits of that original church blueprint. You know how the building process goes when you when you take blueprints and you construct a building. The building rises in 3D, from this set of blueprints, which gives you each of the necessary elements that, that you need to make the building. The church in the 21st century, particularly within American evangelicalism, is by and large an organization that is based on um, tradition, and, and, and tradition that is a reflection less of the biblical blueprint and more a reflection of tradition that is uh, sort of a uniquely American expression of bureaucracy. Uh, you've heard me say this before. The 21st century church gets bogged down in bureaucracy because in structure, it looks and acts more like the U.S. federal government than it looks and acts like the church in the book of Acts. Um, in most churches, you have, uh, you have a pastor who serves in some sort of executive uh, capacity, kind of like the president. You have a board of deacons. When we get to Acts chapter 6, we're going to talk about why there's not anything about a board of deacons that's, that's biblical. But in most American churches, you have a board of deacons. You have a church council or a Sunday school council or some other ruling body. And those, those ruling bodies, like the two houses of the, the two sides of, of Congress, they oversee a series of committees that function about like the regulatory agencies of our federal government. And we wonder why the church never quite sees any real spiritual productivity, and we can't figure it out until we stop and, and say, well, well, let's look at the blueprint. What does the church actually look like? And when we look at the blueprint, what strikes us is that the blueprint looks nothing like what we've built in American evangelicalism. So the key to a biblically effective church 
in the 21st century or frankly in any century is to go back and discover what are the marks of authenticity that we can find in the original blueprint that maps out what God intended. And if we could reproduce the blueprint, what we would see is a church that functions, that operates, that that has an impact like the first century church. We started this series two weeks ago, and we looked at the first two of those characteristics. We looked at uh, the characteristics of prayerful decision-making and qualified leadership. Churches that don't have biblically qualified leadership can't possibly produce biblical results. Churches that don't move forward with a foundational approach of prayer in their decision-making process will never find the direction that they're looking for. Last week, we, we moved to Acts chapter 2, and we talked about a spirit-filled evangelism. That is, the, the willingness to move beyond programming or, or uh, uh, you know, kind of sales pitch approaches to evangelism and let the Holy Spirit fill us to overflowing so that evangelism is the natural uh, byproduct of, what it, of, of just what it means to be a part of the church. Tonight I want to stay in chapter 2 for uh, another week. And I want to look at the middle part of this chapter, which is we saw in, this, in last week's lesson about evangelistic impulse, we saw that Peter, in verse 14, steps up and begins to preach. That's the next characteristic that I want to look at that is necessary for an authentic church in any generation, and that is biblical proclamation. Now, as, as we go through this, I'm going to talk to you some about, about Peter's uh, sermon, but, but we're not going to emphasize the the content of the sermon so much as I'm going to analyze the way he went about presenting his case because what Peter gives us is uh, a model of what biblical preaching actually looks like. The reason that's important is because uh, probably 99.9% of evangelical churches in America will have a sermon or a teaching time as a part of their normal weekly uh, worship experience. And yet, I'm convinced that in our generation, we are in uh, a season of God's passive judgment on the American church that is related to what we saw, what we see in the book of Amos when Amos talks about the rejection of God's Word uh, in, in his day, uh, led God to, to put Israel in what Amos called a famine of the Word of God. In other words, uh, they thought that they were fine and they were going about their, their business and doing their routines and they were, they were, they were doing the temple uh, sacrifices and all the procedures, but... But God actually took access to His Word and dried it up so that it was hard to find a teacher who gave uh, clear 
exposition of the Word of God. My evidence for this, there's plenty of statistical evidence. Um, It's disturbing, really, the levels of biblical illiteracy among American evangelicals in our generation. Um, In fact, the illustrations of that illiteracy uh, would be hilarious if they weren't so sad. You know, we've all heard some of the jokes, um, the belief that the epistles are the wives of the apostles. You know, well, we can can do that kind of thing. But the bottom line is... um, it's hard now, really, for the first time in a hundred years, the last couple of generations, um, it's hard to use a biblical reference or a biblical illustration in a sermon where you're preaching one text and you draw from another place in Scripture and use that as an illustration. That's difficult because people don't know the Bible well enough. They don't recognize the illustration And so they don't get the point that you're trying to make. We have people who have perfect attendance pins for decades in Sunday school who can't answer basic questions about the Word of God. What's the theme of Paul's letter to the Galatians? What's the arc of the story, the plot line of the Bible? What's the order between the judges, the Pentateuch, the prophets, the the monarchy, the divided monarchy. How do you put the story in order? We don't know. Because we've, we've been casual. But we've not only been casual in our approach to the Scriptures, we've been in churches where there was a famine of the Word. One of the most disturbing things that, that I get... It might be an exaggeration to say I get it every week, but I bet I get this comment three out of every four Sundays. I don't know how many times a guest, a first-time visitor, will approach me and say, my name's so-and-so, and and this is my first time to visit Evergreen, and, and I just want to thank you for preaching from God's Word because I've been visiting churches and I can't find anybody that does that anymore. Well, you know, I don't get out on Sundays much. I mean, I don't have access to what happens in other churches. But anecdotally, it disturbs me that the reports that I get are what I think should be job one for a senior pastor is apparently not emphasized at all so we go back to our original question if we don't have the exposition of god's word if we don't have the teaching of god's word as a significant priority in the assembling of our church families how can we expect the church in the 21st century to have the results that we see in the church of the first century. Well, let's talk about biblical proclamation and what that looks like, what the elements uh, of that actually can be. 
in this in this story of, of, of Acts chapter 2, you know in the early verses, uh, the 120 are gathered together. They're unified in their spirit. They're praying. They're following the instructions of Jesus. They're waiting for uh, for power. He said, go and wait. Power's going to come. You'll be my witnesses. They don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but but they're waiting. They know they'll know it when it comes. Sure enough, there is the sound of a rushing wind. They they see uh, a, a picture of, of, of fire that looks like tongues that have separated over each one of them and settles on them, and they experience the Spirit of God birthing the church by taking up residence in those who will be in that original charter membership. You ever, you ever been in a church where being a charter member was a big deal? Well, there's 120 people that were charter members in the church. Well, that's what happened. They immediately realize that what they were told to wait on has happened. And they begin to speak in, in languages that they had never learned. And so with a clear sense of, uh, of, of the Spirit's impulse, they spill out of the room where they've been waiting for this moment and they immediately go out into the public square where they begin to talk to people. This Spirit-filled evangelism has both the ability that's been given to them to be effective and the impulse to go do it. Now, in verse 14, where we're going to start reading, we're going to see Peter step up and preach. But I want you to kind of get the feel for this. Luke gives us the record of what Paul says. But really, the expectation is that everybody in that room spilled out and began to have conversations, probably in ways that were appropriate. Some of them were having one-on-one conversations. Others had gathered a group of people, and they were giving testimony of what God was doing. Others, like Peter, probably stepped up and gathered a crowd. On the western uh, frontier in the the 19th century, the early part of the 19th century, uh, one of the common features of the frontier was what we call camp meetings. They happened a lot in Kentucky and Tennessee, and, and as the the western boundaries uh, of the United States begin to begin to move. Um, uh, people lived in isolation. They they lived apart from each other or or in small collections. And periodically in in the summertime, they would come together for what they called camp meetings. Well, camp meetings were huge. Uh, historically, they were they were huge social events. I mean, uh, marriages were secured. Um, you know, that's you, you worked on the farm out in the, the middle of nowhere for, for, for nine or ten months, and then you got to go to a camp meeting, and that's where all the girls were. They, they made matches for, for marriages. Uh, they did, they conducted business. I mean, the people came together, but the central, it was a very uh, social kind of event, and, it, and it, 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 it allowed the people who lived mostly in isolation on the on the frontier to have some time to come together and, and, and really have an identity as, as the people of the United States. But the main feature of the camp meetings was preaching. And it was almost a carnival-like atmosphere because on a big tree stump that would elevate the speaker uh, three or four feet, they would chop down trees and have these, uh, and have these tree stumps spaced out 
far enough away so that a speaker could preach, he could express with his voice, he could scream and yell, and the crowd would gather and they would listen to him preach. Well, just out of earshot in that direction, there was another tree stump with a different preacher and he was doing the same thing. And just out of earshot in this direction, there was another preacher and he was on a tree stump doing the same thing. And it was sort of a, uh, a mall approach to preaching. And preachers of all denominational stripes would come and they would preach hours a day. And sure enough, God would move and people would get saved and, and, and amazing things would happen. But the camp meeting was, was this time when they could hear the Word of God in ways that they didn't typically have opportunities. Well, that's kind of what Pentecost reminds me of. You have 120 people, and they spill out, and they're spread around. Peter, his sermon is recorded for us by Luke, but I suspect that what we have with Peter was happening in a number of different places with different people as they were not only in that spot where Peter was, but as this 120 spilled out and began to to, to work their way through the crowds across the city of Jerusalem. Crowds of tens of thousands of people who had assembled in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Jewish festival called Pentecost. Well, verse 14, Peter steps up. You see on your outline, I've called this first part the word of explanation. Chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. Now, now let me just let me make a mention there. Um, you remember in verse 12, as they spilled out and began to talk about the mighty acts of God in the language that the people understood. People that had come from every direction of the Roman Empire. You remember the list of all the places where, where people had come for this celebration. And they're stunned that these men were speaking in ways that they could understand. But there were a few scoffers that said, oh, they're just drunk. They're just drunk. Well, Peter starts by clearing up that misapprehension right at the beginning. You see, in a, in a festival period like this... Uh, in Jewish culture, uh, there were prescribed times during the festival when you would share the meals. It was still too early in the morning for anybody to have eaten the first meal of the day. It was even more frowned upon for anybody to drink anything intoxicating that early in the day. So Peter deals with that right up front. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. 
I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, this isn't a sermon yet. What we have here is Peter begins his talk by rejecting their stereotypes. He says, listen, uh, he starts by saying, Fellow residents, let me explain to you and pay attention to my words. This is where he stands up and he gets their attention. The word pay attention is, uh, is a word that, that means uh, listen up because what you're about to hear is an inspired utterance. In other words, Peter's not suggesting, hey, listen, I have got a really good sermon and you need to hear this. What Peter is saying is, listen up, because I'm about to explain something to you of such depth and such importance and such significance, it's going to rock your world. Look this way. Pay attention. Give your, give your attention to me, because I have a message for you. He starts by correcting misrepresentations. He says, listen, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And then he goes to the Scripture. He says, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. The rest of these verses that we've read, verses 17 through 21, this is um, this comes from Joel, the Old Testament minor prophet named Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Now, just as a side note, if you flip over to Joel 2, 28 through 32, you're going to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is not an exact word-for-word translation here. Okay, here's, here's, here's what you need to know. They didn't have cut and paste in the ancient world, okay? What you have in the book of Joel in your Bible is Joel translated from Hebrew. What Peter is using, which would have been common in his generation... He's quoting Joel from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew. So what we have is we have the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2. It's gone from Hebrew to English. But what we have here in Acts is we have the Old Testament prophet Joel has gone from Hebrew to Greek to English. Okay? That extra translation step in there makes the Acts quotation not exactly word for word. But that's okay. Because, because it is an accurate translation, but every time you move something to another language, um, it, there's a shade of, uh, of difference to it. He recites these scriptures... And without uh, spending a lot of time on the context, uh, uh, on the content, he basically quotes a verse that provides Peter with the best language available to him to try and explain what's happening. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who now resides in Peter, he's immediately drawn to this prophecy of Joel. Joel looked at the future, the 
prophetic telescope of the future. And what he saw was that there would be a time where God would so pour out his spirit that that his sons and daughters, that men and women, those who are the people of God, would have from that spirit the ability to speak God's words effectively. Now, Joel's passage is, uh, is in a section that speaks about the day of the Lord, which is really the, the day of judgment. Joel is, but, but remember when we've talked about prophecy before, I always try and help us understand Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy is like looking hundreds of years down the, the road through a telescope. And what we see through that telescope looks like there's one mountain peak. But what happens is as we get closer, as time passes and we get closer to the events, what we realize is there are really two mountain peaks that are lined up with each other and there's an entire valley between the two mountains. It's not uncommon in Old Testament prophecy for a prophet to describe things that from his perspective look like they're all wrapped up as a single event only to then discover as we get closer that he's seeing two events and he's, and he's describing them as though they're one because of the distance of prophetic perspective. Okay? The classic example of this is... Uh, is the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus, often presented as two sides of the same coin, a single event. And yet, there, when we get closer, there are some scriptures that seem to indicate that those are actually events that are separated by a period of time. But prophecy always has that perspective that's a little bit skewed because you can't, you can't see all the distance. It's like looking at mountains from a, from a, a long way away. Well, here, while Joel is talking about uh, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and and how God will pour out of, how, out His Spirit, and, and there will be a real presence of God uh, providing an opportunity for people to be saved from the judgment of the day of the Lord. Peter, under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit, latches onto this passage and he says, this is the best explanation I can come up with for what's happening here. God himself is pouring out his Spirit. This is, in Peter's words, uh, he, quoting Joel, uh, Peter would say, this is the beginning of the last days that culminate in the day of the Lord. This is that uh, that process that Joel foresaw, but he couldn't see the distance between the events. Peter's making his case that what's happening today is not a bunch of early morning drinkers who are drunk, but rather there is a present spirit here, and God has begun the final chapter of redemption. Redemption secured at the cross, but now in this new thing called the church, redemption to be played out from generation to generation so that before the day of judgment that Joel could see from so far away, before that day comes, there will be the opportunity for people to turn from their sins, repent, exert faith, be saved. Okay? Now, 
I'm focusing on content, but we're going to get to structure here in just a minute. In, in verses 19 and 20, I will display wonders in the heavens. Uh, he's picturing that great, what he calls in verse 20, the great and glorious day of the Lord. Uh, in verse 24, uh, no, oh, we'll get there in just a minute. Let's stay with these. Um, he, he finishes by saying, here's the assurance. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What Peter is doing is he's showing us what authentic and anointed biblical proclamation looks like. Let me, let me give it to you this way. We're gonna, I'm going to break it out. Well, I tell you what, let's finish, let's finish the sermon, and I'll do all of that together. Um, what I've called word of exposition begins in, in verse 22. This is still his sermon. Uh, let, let's see where this goes. Uh, beginning of verse 22, he's read the scripture. Now he's going to begin the explanation or the exposition of the text. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you, you yourselves know. He turns his attention to Jesus and he says... Uh, one of the evidences that this man, Jesus, was in fact the Messiah that had been prophesied, one of the evidences is that God attested or God testified to Jesus' identity by attaching miracles, wonders, and signs that were accomplished through Jesus. Now, here's the thing. There's no debate here about those miracles. There's nobody that says, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, this happens in, in our generation all the time. Whoa, whoa, Jesus was, was surely a, a great moral teacher, but, but miracles? Uh, I don't know if I'm comfortable with, with that whole supernatural thing. I mean, even the founding fathers of, of, of the United States, uh, Thomas Jefferson took, literally took scissors and trimmed out all the supernatural elements of the, of the New Testament. There is a Bible in the Smithsonian Museum, I believe, called the Jefferson Bible. And it is a physical cut and paste. He cut the pages and pulled out everything supernatural and created gospels that have Jesus as a wonderful teacher of delightful moral lessons. The problem is Jefferson's gospel ends with Jesus in the tomb. That's not Christianity at all. But here we have people in the generation that Jesus walked among the, on the streets of Jerusalem. And Peter says he was attested by God because of miracles that God accomplished through the Messiah as proofs of his identity. And guess what? Nobody denies it. There was no debate in the first century about the miracles. They were a given. Everybody accepted it. Even when we get later in the book of Acts and we see, we see Peter and John in a couple of chapters, uh, they, they heal a man who's, who's been a lifelong beggar sitting outside the, the temple getting whatever pocket change he could get. They heal him and Peter and, and, uh, and John are dragged before the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities, and 
and they scold them. But they don't deny the miracle. You can't deny it because the guy that hadn't walked his whole life is doing a jig. He's dancing and testifying and, and, and celebrating. There was no denial in that generation of the miracles of Jesus. And so he starts by saying this Messiah was recognizable because he was marked by miracles of divine origin. Look at verse 23. It says, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. This Messiah was recognizable. There was divine evidence of who he was. And yet, in spite of the evidence, you rejected him. You raised him up and put him on a cross. Now, the Romans hammered the nails. But Peter is pointing to the religious leaders within Judaism as being responsible for this crime against the Messiah. Just as a side note, everybody gets caught up with uh, the paradox, the struggle between predestination and free will. And we always go to Romans and we try and get Paul to, to solve that struggle. What is God's part and what is man's part? Listen, the clearest, the clearest um, uh, contrast of those two seemingly contradictory ideas that God predestined some things, that He determined some things in advance, but mankind contributed out of, out of his free will, a participation in those things. It's not Romans. It's this verse right here. Though he was delivered up, Jesus, though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. In other words, the death of the Messiah was not an accident. It wasn't an unforeseen uh, circumstance. It didn't catch God off guard. It's what God had intended from the beginning. This Messiah was born and put in a manger in a stable in Bethlehem. And from the day he was born in the fullness of time, the cross was in his future. That was predetermined. And yet, that doesn't let off the lawless people who nailed him to a cross to kill him. Listen, one of the questions that I get regularly are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminian? I try and be a biblical preacher. Because guess what? Predestination and meaningful choice by men are presented side by side in the Word of God. Did God predestine the cross? Absolutely. It was locked in. It was coming. It was the plan that would lead to the sacrifice that would satisfy justice and provide redemption. But are the lawless men who participated in the murder of the Messiah, will they answer for their choices? Absolutely they will. This Messiah was rejected, but then he was resurrected. Look at verse 24. 
God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. I love that because as soon as he, as soon as he levels the charge that you participated in killing the Messiah, we don't get stuck there. We don't stay there because that's only part of the story. Peter can't wait to get to the next part, which is, but God, but God raised him up. And I love this verse. This is one of the great verses of Christology in the Bible because notice what it says here. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. He did not deserve to die. He had no sin for which he had to pay. There was no debt on his life. Death couldn't hold him. It was not possible. The minute that a sinless perfect, unblemished, untainted sacrifice was made, death lost its hold because Jesus didn't deserve to die and death couldn't hold its claim on him. Listen, Peter's doing some pretty powerful preaching right here. I love this because this is the Peter that 50 days ago was scared to death of a teenage milkmaid. I don't, I, I don't know the man. I, 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 I'm not one of those people. I, I'm not with him. And yet here, in front of a crowd of thousands, he is preaching with anointing and power. Well, he quotes another verse, another passage. Um, and in verses 25 to 36, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, but he quotes David, beginning in verse 25. Uh, the reference here, these, this quotation is from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. You can look that up later. He then, beginning in verse 29, after reading a second passage, he does in verse 29 what, he, what he's already done, um, beginning in verse 22, which is he takes that passage and he exposits it he explains it he digs deep down into it and he opens it up so that everybody in the crowd could understand it verse 36 therefore let all the house of israel know with certainty that god has made this jesus whom you crucified both lord and and Messiah. Here's, let's go back. I mean, I wanted to cover some of the content of his sermon because it's so powerful. But I really want to step back from the content of the sermon to see the preaching itself as a part of the blueprint for the church. What happens here is what ought to happen in every worship experience in every church in America. Unfortunately, it doesn't, but it ought to. This is a mark of an authentic church. Preaching begins with an opening connection, sometimes an illustration, sometimes a story, but it is like Peter stood up and said, hey, 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 I need your attention because something's about to be said that you're not going to want to miss. Authentic preaching begins by reaching out and grabbing the attention of the audience because what's about to be played out 
has eternal significance to it. Now, there are speakers, I won't call them preachers, there are speakers in churches across America who have developed the basic skill set of delivering interesting speeches. And they know that they need to connect. They know they need a a story, maybe it's a humorous story, maybe it's a, uh, a story that, that, that captures your imagination, it grabs your attention. These elements are not unique to every speaking opportunity. I mean, in some, to some degree, the, the elements of biblical preaching that I'm going to lay out here are the same elements of any effective public speaking opportunity. But here's the difference. A public speaking moment may follow a certain pattern because it's effective in communicating, in capturing the attention and, and, the, uh, and the actions of an audience. But biblical preaching is not only marked by the elements of communication, but it is, it is bound together by an anointing of the Spirit of God. And what that means is, when Peter stands up and says, Hey, 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 right here, right here, your attention please. When a preacher starts with an opening illustration, when he tells a story, when he draws you into the text, if there is an anointing on the message, that first moment will be an impulse in your heart that says, well, I I better pay attention to this because I think something's going to happen here. I think there's going to be something powerful. I think there's something I need to hear. I had a testimony from a guy uh, a a while back, and he was telling me about how he came to Christ. Grown man, um, wife, two, two teenage sons, went to church after years, after decades of not being in church. They actually went to church one Sunday morning uh, because their boys, they realized their boys had never been inside a Christian church. And he thought, you know, they just need the experience. They just need the cultural experience of a church. And he said, we went in and we sat down in a church. We'd never been there before. We didn't know, didn't know the people. And we sat there and he said within minutes of the start of the sermon, I knew that man was telling me the truth. You see, that's an anointing. That's not just effective communication. That's not just an engaging speaker. That's not an after-dinner speaker who's, who's got a few jokes and a polished presentation. There's an anointing, and the evidence of that anointing begins right up front. There was a, a professor at Southwestern Seminary by the name of Roy Fish, an evangelism professor. He was one of the least likely looking preachers you would ever think. I mean, he was, he was kind of old and kind of wrinkled and just not impressive at all. And, uh, and he was, uh, I was at First Baptist Church Dallas as associate pastor. We lost our pastor. And uh, we managed for about six months, and Dr. Fish came after about six months to be our interim pastor. And you looked at him, and you're like, okay, 
we'll see. And I mean, when he stepped up to the pulpit, kind of mild-mannered, kind of kind of almost wimpy, just kind of, thank you, glad to be here, you know, been looking forward to, to spending time with you. And I'm telling you, my wife will give testimony. Five, six, seven minutes into his sermon, and you were like, I better listen to this guy because there was an anointing there. And in in minutes, you were caught up because this guy was speaking truth. He was proclaiming the Word of God, and he was opening it up, and you were going, my stars, I never saw that before. Where did that come from? Who is this guy? That's what happened here. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a scholar. He wasn't he didn't have seminary credentials. He was a fisherman. When he first said, "Hey, hey, hey, everybody, right here, you're going to want to hear this." They thought it was a sideshow. They went over cuz they thought, "Well, you know, we don't have much going on right now. This would be interesting." And I mean, in minutes, he had captured the audience. Why? Not because his opening to draw the people in was in itself all that outrageous, but there was an anointing. Authentic, biblical proclamation, a mark of a biblical church, is teaching that has the anointing of the Spirit of God on it. Peter starts with this opening. We often do it in our generation with an illustration, a story, uh, but he really just did it with a, with a call for attention. The next part of preaching that, that is biblical is an exposition of the text. This is where our generation breaks down. I, I, I had one woman come to me and she said, Oh, Pastor, we went home to visit family and we went to my mom and dad's church and, and, and the pastor was there and, uh, and he had his Bible like this and, and he just kept waving it and waving it and waving it and she said, I'm 20 minutes in and I wanted to stand up and say, open it and read it. Because it was a prop for him. He had a speech. He had an opinion. But he didn't have the text. Listen, I got an opinion on everything. It's who I am. And that is not what I'm called to share with you on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. You can't get to heaven by following my opinions. It is the Word of God that is the, the, that is the, the absolute necessary element to biblical preaching. And when we have preachers who tell stories, who relate events. Uh, we were at a church one time and uh, visiting a church, and the pastor uh, had gotten a letter from a church member. And he read the letter. And then he preached the letter. And then he applied the letter. And I was like, oh, my stars. I saw a preacher one time when I was a kid preach an entire sermon series from the hymnal. Now, there's some great theology in the old Baptist hymnal, but it's not the inerrant Word of God. Well, but 
you know, amazing grace, how sweet sound. Let's sing it, let's sing it, let's sing it, but let's not preach it. If you want to preach amazing grace, I can give you a hundred passages that teach about amazing grace. Let's go to the Word. Let's preach the Word. Let's take the Word and let's open it up. One of my very favorite things in the whole world is to teach the Word of God in such a way that you leave saying, wow, I never saw that before. I love it when somebody says, I could never get that out of the text. I don't know how you did that. I say, yes, you could. If you spent the same amount of time last week in that text that I spent, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's the teacher. I don't have any brilliance. I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not so highly educated that, that the Word just falls open. You know who the teacher is? I'm just the mouthpiece. The teacher is the Spirit of God. Peter doesn't have any education. And yet he goes to this passage in, in the prophet Joel and he reads it and then he explains it. And the people who started thinking, this, is, this ought to be an interesting sideshow. Let's go watch this guy. And he's got them because they know he's telling them the truth. He's opened it up and it makes sense to them. They've heard the prophet Joel before. They were, they, they were, for the most part, Jews that had grown up in going to synagogue and, and hearing the lessons. They knew who Joel was. They knew what his message was. And yet, they'd never heard it this way. Because for the very first time, the Old Testament is being presented and interpreted and understood through Jesus Christ. It never happened before this. How did Peter invent a hermeneutic, uh, a method of interpretation where he understood the Old Testament through Jesus because the Spirit taught it to him. The Spirit took him to the text. The Spirit gave him the meaning of the text. The Spirit gave him the ability to communicate the text. Exposition is the unmistakable core of biblical preaching. Exposition is followed by application. Let's read a little bit further. In verse 37, it says, When they heard this, meaning Peter's sermon, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. You see, what happens here is he got their attention with, a, with an anointed opening. He explained the text under the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he made application. Application is simply application is simply the way the, the, the task of a pastor in the 21st century is to take a first century message or maybe an Old Testament message to give you the historical context, the, the original author's intent. Listen, here's, my, here's a pet peeve of mine. I hate 
Sunday school classes and life groups and Bible study groups. I hate groups where you read a passage and then pool your ignorance by saying, well, what does this mean to you? Gentle folk. I don't give a flying rip what the text means to you. I want to know what it means. Exposition of the Word of God is the explanation of the author's intent, the historical context, the meaning of words and grammar so that we understand what it means. Now, where does that come? Where does that, that land for us? Okay, once we understand what it means, see, I hate those meanings. Well, what does this mean to you? Well, I think it means so. I don't care what you think. I'm not trying to be ugly, but it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what it means. Now, once we've figured out what it means, it is the pastor's job, it is the Sunday school teacher's job, it is the life group shepherd's job to take the meaning of the text and bridge the centuries so that it has application in our lives, in our culture, in our generation. See, I don't care what you think it means. What I want to know is once we figure out what it means then how does that land on you? What does that mean you should do next? What flows out of this? Because we know what the word means, what now is my responsibility? Peter takes us through Joel. He takes us through Psalm 16. And when they heard, their immediate question was, it says they were pierced to the heart. By the way, that's God's activity in them. That's the conviction that comes when the Spirit says, this is true, you better pay attention to this. And they said to Peter, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said, well, here, let me bridge from Psalms. Let me bridge from Joel and bring it right up into your lap. Here's what you should do. You should repent and be baptized each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He called them to action because they had a conviction that was God working in them. He gave personal application, which is, what does this mean in my circumstance? You see, here's a crowd who has just realized for the first time this was the Messiah. He walked among us. God testified to his identity by miracles. We rejected him. We weren't sitting on the Sanhedrin. We weren't the Roman soldiers, but we're responsible. We turned him away. We pushed him to the cross, but God wouldn't let him stay dead because death couldn't hold him. God proved not just by the miracles of his life, but the resurrection from his death that this was the Messiah. Oh, my stars, I'm guilty of rejecting God himself in the Messiah that had been promised to us from the beginning. What do I do now? Brothers, you repent. 
and to be baptized. Now let me let me step over here and, and let's just do let's just chase a little rabbit just just for a minute. This is one of the confusions that puts us in a bind with those brothers and sisters in other denominations who teach that baptism is a necessary element for your salvation. In other words, you're not saved till you get baptized. They say they love to go. Now, Paul deals with that. Paul, Paul doesn't believe that at all. But they love to go to Peter because in both Acts chapter 2 and also in 1 Peter, Peter makes this reference about salvation. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And it just throws us for a loop because we're like, well, he says repent and be baptized and then we're forgiven of our sins. Okay, remember, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. So what does it mean? All right. There are two elements that Peter uses in his typical presentation of the salvation process. Paul is more likely to use this language. Repent and believe. When Paul uses that language, what he's doing is he's describing two sides of the same coin. Repent means I'm going this way and I realize that God is that way. I'm pursuing my sin, but God is that way. Repent literally means to make a U-turn and go in the other direction. But see, if you... If you, we do this all the time. Say, well, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to swear off sweets. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit my bad habit. And, I, and we repent of our bad habit. We turn around, but we end up falling back into our bad habit. Why? Because we don't replace it with anything. We say, well, well I'm going to quit doing that. But we don't, we don't fill that void with anything else, so we gravitate back. Th- that's not repentance. That's turning over a new leaf. That's... That's, uh, that's having a resolution uh, in the new year. Repent means to make an irrevocable change of direction, to turn and go away from my sin and toward, toward God. But that's the turning away from sin toward God part of the process. When Paul says believe, he says, okay, now I've turned away from my sin and I'm turning toward God. To believe is to embrace God or more, effect, more accurately, to be embraced by God. So for Paul, repent and believe. It's turning away from sin and taking all that God has for me into my life. Now, in the New Testament, baptism is a symbol. It is an external sign of what the Holy Spirit does internally in the life of a person when he believes when the holy spirit comes and takes up residence he he puts the old man off the throne and god takes residence by his spirit and he purchases your life with a price that is with the work of jesus christ so for paul the language is repent and believe peter is perfectly consistent with Paul. He just uses different language. Instead of believe, Peter uses be baptized because to be baptized is the external sign that you have believed, that you have embraced the truth of what God makes available to you, your redemption. 
Paul says, repent, believe. Peter says, repent and be baptized. Well, when are you baptized biblically? When you believe. There is no contradiction between Peter and Paul here. It's just a different use of language. Well, why did they use different language? Because Paul was talking to Gentiles and Peter was talking to Jews. And they spoke in vocabulary terms that their audience could best capture what they were trying to teach. But they are the same thing. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is the external sign of what does save you, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit into your heart as you are forgiven of your sins by the work of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, an opening illustration or a call, exposition of the text, but now application to bridge the gap so that the meaning of the text becomes practical. What is the result in my life because of what, I'm, what I've just learned? What does this mean for me in, 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 in what I should do next? That's the application. And it finishes with an unmistakable call to decision. That's here where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, for the, for, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. Make a permanent, irrevocable decision to follow Jesus Christ. We use different language in different generations, but we say give your life to Jesus. We say receive Jesus into your heart. We have all different kinds of ways to say it. The bottom line is take control of your life and turn it over and let God have who you are. What happens is in return, He takes your broken, fractured, beat-up life and He gives you life abundant in its place. A call, an opening illustration, a connection that is anointed, that impulse that says, I'm about to hear something that is true. The exposition, the explanation of the text. Man, that's where we miss the boat. We have so-called preachers who tell funny stories and, 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 and present a lovely little devotional homilies. But they don't spend time in the Word of God. Why? Because we're all busy. We're all busy. But let me tell you what, what the devil does with Bible teachers. He will do anything to keep you from putting in the hours in the Word of God necessary for you to deliver an anointed message of truth to the people who listen to you. And there are too many preachers who have deprioritized study. I've been preaching for over 30 years now. In fact, I 
just ran the numbers recently because I knew it was getting close. Um, not counting Wednesday nights, I'm coming up on a thousand sermons at Evergreen. Sunday sermons. I've been doing this a while is my point. You would think at this stage that I could just show up on Sunday and open the Bible and and preach. I mean, I've been doing it a long time. I've got a a base knowledge uh, of of every book of the Bible at some level. Um, But I'll never forget that old story about the German preacher named Otto. Otto had been preaching for decades, every week, like clockwork. He was in his study early in the mornings, and he studied every single day. He wrote his sermons out with diligence, and he prepared and prayed and came into the pulpit ready to preach. And one of his, one of his church members said one day, he said, Otto, listen, you've been doing this forever. Why do you work so hard at study? I mean, you know the Bible better than anybody in our church. Why don't you just stand up in the pulpit and just let the Spirit speak? And Otto said, I've done that a time or two. And every time I stand up in the pulpit without studying, the Spirit always speaks. He always says, Otto, you doom cough. Why didn't you study? (laughs) Because it's not about showing off my basic Bible knowledge. It's about an anointed word from God delivered through His Spirit, voiced through His messenger. And the minute a preacher gets comfortable in just spouting what he already knows, it's time for you to find another church. We don't see biblical results in the churches today because, for one thing, we don't have authentic, anointed, biblical proclamation. Peter gives us the model. Opening, exposition, application, call to action. If you don't see those elements, you should wonder what's wrong. Well, here's the last verse, and this is where we finish. Verse 41. So, those who accepted his message were baptized And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Pretty good for a first sermon. The church went from 120 to 3,120 in one day. Now, Peter wasn't the only one preaching, but Peter was representative of what God was doing among the 120 as they experienced the first blush of the Holy Spirit living in them. Listen, guys. The minute we lose sight of the reality that God chooses to live in us, The moment we start to take that for granted, we quench the Spirit. 
we, we, we think that we've got our ticket to heaven stamped and we've put it in our pocket and we're just waiting for the train to come and pick us up. And the reality is God could have just transported you to heaven on the moment that you got saved, but he didn't do that. He left you here and he left you here to study his word so that you could give biblical proclamation. Listen, here's the thing. This is not only about preaching. This is the way we talk to people. We connect with them under the inspiration of the Spirit in our lives who gives us courage, who gives us the right words to speak. We connect to people. We open the Bible and tell them what's true. We take the meaning of the text and we make it applicable in their lives. And then we invite them to decision. This is a great sermon, but it's also the exact way we have conversations about spiritual things with the people we know. What's necessary to be effective here? You got to be filled with the Spirit. You got to spend time in the Word of God. And you have to have the courage to talk to people about what's true. This is a blueprint characteristic of a biblical church. What have we seen so far? Prayerful decision making, qualified leadership. Spirit-led evangelism and biblical anointed proclamation. Well, we're not finished, but that's a pretty good start for figuring out how to do church in the 21st century in a way that honors God and will open us up to be available for God to do biblically proportionate miracles in the lives of of our people. That is what we're after. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter's sermon that is preserved for us, for the model that he provides for us, Father, for the key of of your spirit being the, the power behind all of it. Lord, whether it is proclamation from the pulpit or conversation uh, from from our people, let Evergreen be a place marked by the anointed communication of truth in your word to the lives of people who need to hear it. Give us the boldness to make application and invite them to decision. Father, have your way among a people called Evergreen. In Jesus' name, amen.